We have been working on a series on finding our mission. Why are we here? What is our purpose? What is the church supposed to be about? And what are we supposed to be doing? Now, we are not determining our purpose by doing a survey of the neighborhood. We're not determining our purpose by polling the church members to see what everyone wants. We are a biblical church. And so what we're doing is we're going to the Bible. And we're looking at the first church in the book of Acts. The church that Jesus started during His own personal ministry, which He empowered, He authorized the church uh, before He departed. That's Matthew chapter 28. And He empowered the church on the day of Pentecost to do the work to which He sent His church. But then in the following chapters, we are looking after the, the immediate results, after the day of Pentecost, when they were empowered, and in the succeeding chapters, we're looking at the examples of the first church and what they were all about, and they become our examples. That's how we determine our purpose. It's not by popular opinion. It is by God's command and the examples of the Word of God. Now, in Acts chapter 3, last week, we were looking at the... Uh, Peter and John going into the temple, going to worship, and they, were a, they saw a, a man who had been lying there for many years. We talked about that last week, that they had seen this man. He had been lying there most of his life, but they saw him, but they never saw him. You, you, you know what I mean by that? And I wonder, how many times do we pass people by day after day we see them again and again, and we never really see them. But the Bible says that they stopped and they fastened their eyes on him. Of course, he looked like he was going to receive an, an alm, an offering. And he expected a coin. And instead, they said, silver and gold have I none, but such as I have I give unto you. And instead of giving him a coin. Have you ever thought, what would have happened if they would just given him a coin? Instead, they gave him what he needed, and he was healed. And the Bible says that he went with them walking and leaping and praising God. And what happened then? They went into the temple, and, and chapter 3 says that he was hanging on to them, not because he needed their help any longer in walking, but for excitement, for thanksgiving, he held on to them. By the way, I'll be speaking about that concept and the danger of that in the service tonight. And I hope you'll be there. Uh, it, it'll be a core building meeting. That's what our Sunday nights, I hope, are going to become. And I hope you'll be there. We'll talk about that. But understand, as they went then into Solomon's porch, because it was Solomon's porch, that means that there were both men and women there. And... I mean, there was excitement. All of a sudden, they're seeing this guy that they recognize that's been a cripple and been begging all this time, and now he's walking and leaping and praising God. Aaron, I don't know uh, what that looks like because he's hanging on to them, but he's walking and leaping and praising God. That had to be a crazy scene. I've wondered, was he running rap laps around the two of them? 
I don't know, but it drew a crowd, I'm telling you. And the crowd, they came running to them, and they must have been asking questions because in some translations it says, and Peter answered them. I guess that means they were asking questions, probably. What in the world just happened? I mean, there was confusion, there was excitement, but there was a crowd, and Peter was a Baptist preacher. You know what that means? Somebody said he took an offering. No. It means he saw a crowd and he saw an opportunity to preach a sermon. And what he did, he preached Jesus. Now, our, our passage of Scripture is Acts chapter 3, verses 11 through 21. And when it says he, it's talking about this man who had been healed. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this, or why do you stare at us, as though by our own power of piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers, but what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that He may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of His holy prophets long ago. Now, I, I want you to think about that passage of Scripture and see very clearly that what the theme, the central theme of everything that he has said is preaching Jesus. And I would submit to you that the purpose, the primary purpose of our church, what we're all about, the reason we are here more than anything else, we are here to preach Jesus. That means that you, as members of our church, when you see an opportunity, whether it's a lame beggar or whether it's a, a, an astounded crowd, if it's your friends or family, whoever you meet, I would encourage you, share Jesus. Talk about Jesus. That is why we're here, and that is our purpose. That's what it's all about. But I'm also appointed preacher. That's not talking about the shape of the top of my head. That's, that's not talking about the shape of my shoes. You've seen those European shoes with the long... Anyway, that's not what it's about. 
what it is, I'm sort of an old-fashioned preacher, and I like to look at a passage of Scripture and see the main points, those things that are essential to fulfilling the theme. And I would say to you that a part of preaching Jesus, first of all, begins with an explanation. Who is it? Who gets the glory? Those men said, do you really think that we did this? You think we have the power? He's hanging on to us, but we did not do that. Instead, the Scripture says, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified His servant Jesus. That's what this is all about. And His name, by faith in His name, has made this man strong who you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. God did it. It was not us. It was God, the only true God. Now, there are a lot of gods in our day, and people have an idea. The popular opinion, if, if we did that popular survey, the popular opinion is that any God will do. In fact, you can hear it from a lot of people. There are many ways to God. No, there's only one. And there's only one God. And He is clearly identified in this passage of Scripture. Notice that it says of Him, He is the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. That's pretty specific. Now, I know that some people say that the God of Islam is the same God. And they use an argument that the word Allah is the Arabic word for God. Okay, uh, He is a God, but is He the God? The God of the Bible is the God of Abraham. They would agree with that, by the way. But He's also the God of Isaac, and they would never agree with that. He's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Let's get a little more specific than that. He is the Father with an only begotten Son whose name is Jesus. And anybody who worships any other God than the Father in heaven, the one Creator God, who, whose Son, only begotten Son, is Jesus Christ, that is the true God. That is the God that gets the glory. That's the God that gets the credit for what was done on that day. And that is the God that we worship. Listen, we need to be very careful about stealing God's glory and taking credit for what God has done. Notice that He did this work to glorify His servant Jesus. Now, most of the time, we talk about Jesus glorifying the Father. But in this instance... There is a work that is done where God is glorifying His servant, Jesus. Now, I would not normally point this out, but some of you may be using a different translation. And it says, His Son, Jesus. Well, is it Son or is it Servant? Uh, you, you have a right to know that there are manuscript variations at that point. What that means is that somewhere along the way, somebody who was copying the Scripture looked at that and said, that shouldn't say servant, it should say son. And they made the change because Jesus is 
the Son of God. Or maybe, on the other hand, it, it said, Son, and they said, well, because of what's going on here, they really didn't mean son, so they wrote servant. Okay, so which is right? They both are. Jesus is the Son of God, and He is a servant of God. And yet, do you, do you get the play on words here? God the Father glorified His servant, His Son, Jesus. How often is a servant glorified? But God the Father did that. And Jesus is the point of this whole sermon. Jesus is the point of the whole story. And what we need to be doing in our church and in our lives is pointing people to Jesus. We don't have to talk about that, that we are without a pastor right now. You don't have to talk with people about that. Just tell them about Jesus. It's not about our building and how beautiful it is, and I love it. But it's not really about that, is it? It's all about Jesus. It's not about the style of our music. And I'm a child of the 60s, and so I like the music in this service. I really do. But it's not really about that, is it? It's all about Jesus. That's why we're here. That's who we worship and we glorify. And what we need to be doing is Jesus. Then I want you to notice that he talks about exaltation. If you read the following verses then, the, we talked about the explanation of who it is that did this and therefore who gets the glory. But then he spends some time talking about who Jesus is. What is His identity? Listen to me. The most important question you will ever deal with in your life is who do you believe Jesus to be? Who's Jesus? Is He just a historical character? Is He the Son of God? Did He really exist? Is He who He claimed that He is? The Son of God. Well, listen to what this spirit-filled preacher said about him. He said, The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified His Son, glorified His servant, Jesus. So who is Jesus? He's the Son of God. But He's also the servant of God. And notice this. He said, You denied the Holy and Righteous One. Jesus is the Holy One. He's not just the Son of God. He is God. Believe me, when a Jew heard this, the Righteous One, they understood very clearly that He was talking about the deity of Jesus Christ, that He came in the flesh, but He is the Holy One. He is God. Until you admit that Jesus Christ is holy, sinless, righteous, perfect. Unless you admit that He is God and that He is to be your Savior, you cannot be saved. You can't be saved from your sins by a mere man. You can only be saved by faith in God. He goes on to say, and 
you asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life. There's also a play on words in this. A murderer versus the author of life. Let's take a vote. How many of you want to save a killer, a destroyer of life? Both. Let's, let's, let's save Barabbas. Let's not let him be crucified. And they voted for the destroyer of life. And instead of, they, instead of saving the author of life, they cried out, crucify him. Crucify him. And that word author in this place, in some translations it says creator. And that is author, creator, same thing. One translation or two says prince, the prince of life. Now there's a reason for that. Because the word that is translated here for author is a word that means a ruling creator. He's not just a creator, he is a ruler, he is princely. You know what that means to me? That they would use such a complicated word with multiple meanings in that place? It means it's hard to describe Jesus. And if you know Jesus, you know exactly what I'm talking about. How do you look at what He's done for you? Look at what He's done in your life. How would you describe Jesus? There's not enough words. There are not enough adjectives. He is... The Son, He's the servant, He's the Holy One, He's the righteous one, He is the author, the creator of life, and He is the one that God raised from the dead. He is the risen one. How many people in the world can claim that they died and they rose again and they're still alive? Now, we can go to the Bible, and there are about three people in the Old Testament that were raised from the dead. We can go to the Bible, and there are about three people during the ministry of Jesus that were raised from the dead, and some after. But all of them died again. No one but Jesus lived, died, rose again, and is still alive. But Jesus is the risen one. Somebody said about that, He is alive and He is active. That's exactly what Peter is saying. He's the risen one but, and He's alive. But He's not just alive. Man, He's working. He's working in this passage. He's wor- he was working on that day and He is working in this church. Make no mistake God is not through with you, and God is not through with this church. He is alive, and He is active. He is working in us, and we praise Him. We lift Him up. By the way, verse 20 also says, calls Him the Christ who was appointed for you. That's, again, in English it's at least a uh, a play on words because the Christ means the anointed one so he is both anointed and appointed that's that's a duplicate idea it's a repetitious idea he's the Christ now that may not mean much to us but listen he's pre- he's preaching to a bunch of Jews and what he's saying to those Jews he's already said he was God he's the holy one he's the righteous one 
He's the creator of the universe, the creator of life. And then he nails it down and says, He's the Messiah. All your generations, you have longed for the coming of the Messiah. And it says very clearly, Jesus is the Messiah. He's the one appointed for you, the coming one, the anointed one. And you've waited all your lives for the Messiah, and you killed Him. Well, that leads us to the next point in Peter's sermon, and that is indictment. Listen, when Jesus is preached, there is inevitably conviction. Conviction of sin and correction. Now, I know that that's not very popular, and we might not look forward to that, but there is an indictment. Listen, when you see the Holy One of God, you will be convicted. And we need to get a vision of God's holiness. In the missionary training ministry seminar in which I spoke this past week in Mountain View, Arkansas, my section of that training was about the call. And when, when I spoke to them about getting a call or recognizing your call, I took them to Isaiah chapter 6, where Isaiah said, I saw the Lord high and lifted up, and His train filled the, the temple. And he got a vision of the holiness of God. What was his very next conclusion? When he saw the holiness of God, he says, Woe is me. Woe is me, for I am undone. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. Listen, if you really get a glance at who Jesus is, you will be convicted of your sins against God. And every one of us has sinned. Every single one of us. When I hear that cry, I am a man of unclean lips. We could talk about all kinds of sins, right? But that one sin alone indicts every one of us. Did you ever say anything you shouldn't say? Did you continue to say that? Then I feel convicted. We are indicted about our talk. And not only are we talking, but we're listening to everybody else around us talking. Woe is me, I am undone, I, I, me, I'm a man of unclean lips. Not only that, but i got all these people dwelling around me who are also with unclean lips. Whew. Talk about an indictment. And the preaching of Jesus always brings conviction and the indictment of sin. What we... Notice what he said that they had done. The God of your fathers glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered. First of all, you delivered him over. You didn't believe him. You could have saved him, but you delivered him over. By the way, you know it's the same crowd that was crying, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. Same crowd as just a few days before had been pulling off their coats and throwing it down on the pavement, waving palm leaves for him to pass by glorifying Him as the Messiah. 
Boy, people change in a heartbeat, don't they? Um, Paul found that out. Uh, he, he went to a city and was preaching and somebody was healed and all of a sudden they declared him a god. And they're worshiping him. I mean, they're bringing cattle to slaughter to worship him. Next thing you know, they've changed their mind and they're stoning him. The crowds turn around in a hurry. They delivered him over. They denied him in the presence of Pilate. How often have we denied Christ by simply being quiet? I'm saying that our purpose is to preach. That's not just in this building and behind this pulpit. We're supposed to be preaching Jesus every day of our lives. When you're given an opportunity to talk with someone at work, at school, on the job, in your neighborhood, you don't have to talk about the common gossip that everybody talks about. And, and man, we talk about everything in the world, but... Uh, you know, uh, I talked with somebody this morning, and I have to admit, I, I mentioned how it looked like the Hogs were going to win. You know, I don't know what, I don't understand the team, because man, they started off, well, I was excited, and they just get tired real quick or something. I don't, I don't know what happens. They're sort of like Christians. We start off well. And we start off strong, and then we get led astray, or we get tired, or we get angry, and we quit serving God. Listen, we can talk about the hogs. We can talk about football. We can talk about politics. We can talk about all kinds of things. What ought to dominate our speech? Did you ever tell them about Jesus? Did you ever speak to your neighbors and your friends about what Jesus has done for you? Listen, we're supposed to be preaching Jesus, not just in the church, but on the streets and the byways and our jobs everywhere we go. Preach, teach, speak, testify about Jesus. They denied Him. Even when Pilate had decided and declared Him innocent, they denied him, and they desired a murderer. I've already spoken about that. Come on, microphone. They desired a murderer rather than Jesus, the author of life. And he said, you killed the author of life. They were guilty. You say, well, I didn't do that. Well, I'm not so sure. You tell me. For whose sin did he die? For mine. He died in my place. I know I've told the congregation before, and sorry if you have to hear the story again, but when The Passion of the Christ came out, the movie, I had a neighbor who invited us to see the the film with him and with his church. His church uh, rented a theater, and we all went together. And they were of another denomination, and that's okay. But he told me, he said, I, I do want you to understand, I know you're a Baptist preacher, and, and we're not Baptist. And 
He said, our pastor's going to get up after the movie and have some words to say. I said, that's all right, you're hosting it and I'm going with you, that's fine. But after the movie, at the end of the movie, I kept waiting for him to get up and say something. And the truth is, we all sat there in stunned silence. Nobody said a word. The only sound was of weeping in the theater. Why didn't your pastor say anything? He said, at that point, there's nothing that could have been said. The film said it all. Who killed Jesus? I did. It was my sins that nailed Him to that cross. It was my cross that He died on. I denied Him. I rebelled against Him. I sinned against Him. He died for me. And I am guilty, guilty before Him. But Paul, or Peter did not just leave them with that guilt, with that conviction. He gave them direction. When you recognize what you've done and that you stand as a sinner before a holy God, what do you do? What must we do? He says, I understand that you acted in ignorance. And I know and I want you to understand that this was the plan of God. This was not an accident. This was God's plan. But knowing, not knowing, not recognizing that it was God's plan does not make you innocent, doesn't mean you're not guilty. And I know He meant that because the very next word is repent. Repent. If you are convicted of your sins, repent. Now, we live in a day where repentance is not normally preached. That is not popular. It is not politically correct. Then neither is the Bible. John the Baptist came preaching, and he said, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus came preaching and preached, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And on this day, Peter preached, and he said, repent, turn back, that your sins may be blotted out. Listen, when you recognize your sin, you recognize that you've denied God, that you've turned away from God, that you've failed God, you recognize that I am a person of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, you repent. Isaiah said, woe is me. You know, we're not very good at repentance. You know why we don't repent? Pride. Pride prevents repentance. Now, that's not in your worship guide. It's not in the notes. I want you to take out a pen and write that down and remember it. Pride always prevents repentance. You can tweet it. You can whatever. Pride prevents repentance. I will not apologize to that person. No, you're too proud. I will not admit that I made a mistake. No, you're too proud. I thank God for the service last Sunday evening when we talked about 
that our church needs repentance and forgiveness and healing and unity. And that is the path that we need to follow. But I need to point out to you that the very first step in all of that is repentance. None of the rest will follow unless it is preceded by repentance. You say, well, I'm not the one that caused all the problem. You didn't cause all of it, but every one of us have the part that we have played. And we must repent. But listen, pride prevents repentance. And if we major on pride, repentance will never take place. Neither will forgiveness, neither will healing, and unity will not come. The very first step is repentance. It's the first thing he said. Repent. We're not good at that. We're too proud. Well, I don't have to apologize. I don't have to repent. Ask God, Lord, do you think that I need to repent? And remember, when you do that, you're looking at the Holy One, the Righteous One, the Just One, the Risen One, the Appointed Anointed One, the One who's coming again. How do you want to face Him? What kind of shape do you want your heart to be in when Jesus shows up? He's coming again. We will meet Him. We will stand before Him. What kind of shape do you want your heart to be in when you see Him? Repent. 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 Pride prevents repentance. You ever make your kids say, I'm sorry? Charlotte, you ever do that? Make your kids say, I'm sorry? And they say, well, I'm sorry. Did you see my face? I'm sorry. Body language, facial expression. You say, no, you're not. And then we say something really dumb. We say, but I can make you sorry. I'll never forget. One time I actually said to my dad, told me to do something, and I don't remember what it was. It's too long ago. And I said, I don't want to do that. And all he said was, I can cure that. (laughs) Oh, and I believed him. I'll make you sorry. No, not not really. Repentance requires sorrow for sin. Sorrow for wrongdoing. Would to God that God would, by His Spirit, break our hearts and give us godly sorrow that leads to repentance. That's biblical. Godly sorrow that leads to repentance. But there's actually two words. Again, you remember the appointed anointed one? He keeps doubling up in all these word plays. He said, repent therefore and turn back. Now wait a minute. What does repent mean? It does not just mean feel sorry for. It is a 300, I'm sorry, 360 would be all the way around. That's 360. Okay, it's a 180 degree turn, right? 
you're facing this way and suddenly you realize the error of your way and you turn the other direction. That's the meaning of, the, of repent. But he also says, turn back. Turn back. I've seen kids repent, so-called, and say, I'm sorry. And they went right back to doing what they got in trouble for. Right? Immediately. Real repentance means you stop doing what you've been doing. You, you've been gossiping? Stop. Be sorry for it. Stop. I said, not me. Pride prevents repentance. You, you've been causing trouble. You've been angry. You've spouted that anger. Stop. Turn back. Be sorry, but stop. Do just the opposite. Do what God wants you to do. That is what we have to do. That is the direction that Paul is giving. Repent. So that a time of refreshing may come. That's what the verse says. A time of refreshing may come. Someone said that the language there is that it's like all of a sudden God's face is shining on you. Man, I love that. You know, that's an Old Testament blessing. May the face of God shine upon you. And, and that idea of refreshing. Listen, when Jesus is preached, it brings repentance. That's what we're doing. That's what this is all about. That is our purpose. That is why we're here in this church, in our lives, in our communities. Preach Jesus. Preach Jesus. Preaching Jesus brings repentance. Preaching of Jesus brings forgiveness of sins. He said, repent and turn back so that your sins may be blotted out. You will never be forgiven of your sins until you realize you are a sinner and you come to Jesus and you admit, Lord, I can't save myself. I'm not good enough. And I trust you. Forgive me of my sins. Be my Lord and my Savior. Preaching Jesus brings forgiveness of sins. And preaching Jesus brings refreshment of the soul. Man, we need refreshment. We need revival. I believe that. Refreshing, refreshing of the soul, refreshing of the spirit. That's revival. And we need revival. But revival will not come without repentance. But preaching Jesus brings repentance, brings forgiveness of sin, and brings refreshment of the soul. Jesus is alive. And He is active. And He is active in this place. Let Him be active and alive in your life, in your home. Jesus. Jesus. Preaching Jesus.